Let's pray together once more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, pray that the meditations of my mouth, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts uh, would be blessed and owned of you. We pray, Father, that you would do good for all of us, edify us, instruct us in this time that we can share together for Jesus' sake. Amen. The title of my talk is Together in the Storm, The Friendship of John Newton and William Cooper. Let me just recommend three books at the front end of our time together. Uh, first is Jonathan Aiken's excellent biography of Newton. Uh, Aiken is spelled A-I-T-K-E-N. Uh, Jonathan Aiken's biography, it's uh, titled John Newton from Disgrace to Amazing Grace. Excellent biography of Newton. Uh, also the book that you've been given. I think all of us should have the book by Tony Reiki, his superb treatment of Newton on the Christian life by that same title. Uh, and then I would just recommend any collection of John Newton's letters. Uh, there's several of them that are in print, especially there's a, a general collection put out by Banner of Truth, and then uh, another collection by the title Wise Counsel, which are John Newton's letters to John Ryland Jr., a younger minister, and it's just his pastoral wisdom overflowing to this young man to help him as he seeks to pastor God's people. This talk is not primarily a biographical sketch of John Newton or William Cooper. This is a talk about their friendship. But to tell that story, I need to give you the context for both of their lives. Uh, so the most significant period of their friendship is 1767 to 1780, while both men are living in a town called Olney, O-L-N-E-Y. So I'm not going to give as much past 1780. They have significant you know, biographical details after that. Newton goes to London, has a very fruitful ministry there, is involved in the campaign against the slave trade, becomes a mentor and counselor to William Cooper. But we'll stop at 1780 for the purpose of this talk. Let me start by telling us something about John Newton. Uh, Newton is born in London on July 24th, 1725, and he will die there 82 years later on December 21st, 1807. Uh, Newton is raised a Protestant dissenter in the Puritan Reformed heritage uh, and is taught to read scripture and to memorize catechisms and hymns at an early age. Uh, just before he turns seven, so he's six years old, just before he turns seven, his mother, uh, who was his most formative spiritual influence, dies. Uh, Newton will carry with him throughout his life the warmest memories of his mother. She, more than anyone, shapes his earliest impressions of God and the gospel. Uh, Newton's father is a sea captain, and less religious than Newton's mother. Newton is raised a seaman himself and frequently accompanies his father on various voyages as a teenager. Uh, Newton develops all kinds of sinful habits and frequently gets into trouble. Uh, he becomes, in his teenage years, an altogether immoral, dissolute, and debased young man. Not the kind of man you want to take home to mom. In 1743, Newton is pressed into naval service by the Royal Navy. He will be exceedingly miserable in the Navy. Uh, as a midshipman, Newton continues his moral decline uh, to the point of eventually becoming despised even by his colleagues at sea. So a bunch of pagan sailors, worldly sailors, uh, they even consider Newton to be uh, exceedingly morally degenerate. Eventually, Newton manages to transfer to a slave ship bound for West Africa. He will make a living in the slave trade for the next 10 years until the year 1754. It is upon various slave ships that Newton both practices and observes acts of extreme moral degradation. He participates and uh, witnesses many cruel and sadistic beatings of slaves. He takes part in various forms of torture as well. Uh, many of the ship's men would sexually assault the female slaves, sometimes in broad daylight on the ship's deck. Uh, Newton himself will testify to these assaults with several murders that he either witnesses firsthand or hears of secondhand. And these experiences will leave indelible scars on Newton's soul throughout his life. Now, on this slave ship, Newton himself is especially known for lewd drunkenness and highly vulgar forms of profanity that even scandalize many of his fellow sailors. Uh, Newton is so disliked among the crew of this ship that he is eventually abandoned in West Africa and forced into slavery himself under an African princess who treats him severely. Uh, he is abused and starved and often forced to engage in degrading activities with other slaves. Uh, Newton is eventually rescued by a ship that had apparently been commissioned by Newton's father to recover him. And it's on the voyage back to England that Newton is powerfully converted. The date is March 10th, 1748. The ship and crew are caught in a severe storm which threatens to, to sink the ship. Uh, Newton wakes in the middle of the night to find his room filling with water. He cries out to, the God, to God for the first time in years. Uh, and though greatly damaged, the ship survives the storm. And Newton will, for the rest of his life, mark this day 
as the beginning of his conversion to Christianity. Now, Newton's growth as a new Christian is slow. Uh, He has many setbacks along the way, often backsliding and falling back into sinful patterns. But he takes baby steps as a young Christian. He doesn't immediately leave the slave trade. It doesn't occur to him that he should leave the slave trade. He just resolves that he's going to be more humane uh, in his treatment of the slaves aboard the ship. But about five years after his conversion that he leaves the slave trade, and even then, uh, it's only because of an epileptic seizure that he has, rendering him unable to continue working in the trade. The next 10 years, from 1754 to 1764, that's Newton's 30s, from 1754 to 1764, they're years of extraordinary growth and maturation for Newton. In that time, he becomes well-established in the spiritual disciplines, uh, gives himself to seasons of intense study of the Bible, embraces evangelical Calvinism, marries his childhood sweetheart, and develops a broad network of evangelical friends, including a number of prominent preachers. Uh, He's especially a fan of George Whitfield's preaching. They become uh, close and intimate friends. He'll become friends with John Wesley and others uh, as well. In 1764, 10 years after he leaves his life at sea, Newton becomes a minister in the Church of England. He becomes uh, the curate or pastor. That word curate comes from the old language, the cure of souls or the care of souls, describing the work of the pastor. I wouldn't mind if we brought that term back. Uh, Curate, uh, pastor of the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul in a place called Olney. He's 39 years old when he takes his first pastorate, and he will be an extraordinarily fruitful pastor. Uh, while in Olney and then later in London. Uh, Olney is a market town situated about 50 miles north of London, only about 10 miles west of Bedford, which was the center of John Bunyan's ministry uh, a century earlier. And indeed, Bunyan's legacy is still alive and well when Newton arrives in Olney. Uh, Newton will faithfully pastor the church in Olney for 16 years, uh, from 1764 to 1780. So Newton arrives in Olney and immediately takes on a busy pastoral schedule. He gives himself to pastoral work with unusual ardor and zeal. He preaches twice on Sundays and often midweek as well. He's heavily involved in pastoral visitation, mercy ministry, and children's ministry. He also regularly houses visitors in his home. He's extraordinarily hospitable. And I should mention also, he is actively engaged in a number of ministers associations and carries on a number of close uh, personal friendships with pastors across denominations. I think Newton would smile on what we're doing today. He loved these kinds of gatherings, getting pastors together, seeking to encourage fellowship and partnership together. And he gains a reputation for his cheerful Catholicity among fellow ministers of all stripes. One of my favorite stories, I think, is John Sutcliffe, the Baptist minister in Olney. Uh, Baptists in those days were kind of despised. They were the lowest of the low. Uh, So Baptists among us, we were kind of second-class, second-rate citizens in England at that time. And uh, Newton, or people would write of Newton, the Church of England minister, you know, the higher-class group, uh, walking through the streets of Olney with his arm around Sutcliffe, like, hey, I identify with this guy. He's one of us. And he was willing to associate with the lowly Baptists of, uh, of his day. Uh, so now as a preacher, John Newton is not especially dynamic and charismatic. Uh, he's not like Whitfield or Wesley at all, uh, who would overwhelm people with oratorical gifts, with charisma, with leadership ability. Uh, Newton's influence is quieter. He's a good preacher, but he's not a great preacher. Uh, He always has large audiences to hear him preach, but his preaching doesn't cause a sensation or revival. Uh, He is not especially known as a theologian either. Uh, He's not publishing large treatises on theology, but where Newton especially thrives is in the arena of pastoral counseling and letter writing. Uh, That may seem odd, letter writing being a place where your ministry is especially felt, Uh, but Newton would write these letters to members of his flock, to brothers and sisters across England, even to some in the States. And they're just profoundly fruitful in helping people grow in grace and grow in the Lord and grow as pastors and things like that. And people are sharing and distributing his letters around because they found so much help and comfort through these letters. Eventually, different ones bundle them up in different collections and publish them. And so that's what he becomes known for, the great letter writer of the evangelical awakenings. So Newton isn't only, he's got a busy pastoral schedule, he's thriving in the work of the ministry. And three years into his ministry, John Newton is introduced to William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, Cowper, pronounced Cooper. Uh, Newton meets Cooper in 1767, just a few years after he, Newton, enters the ministry. Now, who is William Cooper? Uh, William Cooper's dates are 1731 to 1800, a little bit younger than Newton. Uh, He's most well-known today in wider culture as one of the greatest poets of the 18th century. He was one of the forerunners of the Romantic movement, which emerges in the early 19th century. He was read with pleasure by his contemporary Benjamin Franklin here in the States. 
Jane Austen regarded Cooper as her favorite poet. Uh, the great poet Samuel Coleridge considered Cooper the best poet of his age. And uh, William Wordsworth, the great poet laureate, uh, was also a famous admirer of Cooper as well. Uh, Cooper's great poem, The Negro's Complaint, uh, written in support of the abolitionist cause in England, was wielded as an important weapon in that crusade. It was often quoted in this country uh, by Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement of the 20th century. Uh, Cooper is best known in evangelical circles uh, in the past and today as a great hymn writer. Uh, more on that in a minute. Let me briefly tell you about Cooper's life. Uh, he was born on November 15th, 1731 in Berkhamsted, just outside of London, so he turns 291 years old tomorrow. Uh, his father is the, the rector of the local parish church, that would be the local Church of England church, uh, but he's not an evangelical. He's suspicious of the evangelical awakenings. Uh, his mother dies when Cooper is only six years old. And uh, before that time, uh, Cooper watches two of his siblings die as small children. Uh, his early days are punctuated with grief and loss, and he feels most heavily the loss of his mother. Cooper would say later in life, I can surely say that not a week passes, but perhaps I might with equal veracity say a day in which I do not think of her. His father then sends him away to boarding school, an event which would introduce untold misery into Cooper's life, so much so that uh, later on Cooper will write uh, a poem uh, basically imploring fathers not to send their boys to boarding school, uh, that it damages them and it hurts them and fractures uh, their vulnerable emotional life. Uh, one of the reasons Cooper is so miserable at boarding school is due to a 15-year-old boy who terrorizes him while he's there. So listen to his account here and keep in mind, uh, Cooper's only uh, six years old when the events he's describing take place. He says this, quote, my chief affliction consisted in my being singled out from all the other boys by a lad about 15 years of age as a proper object upon which he might let loose the cruelty of his temper. I choose to forbear a particular recital of the many acts of barbarity with which he made it his business continually to persecute me. It will be sufficient to say that he had, by his savage treatment of me, impressed such a dread of his figure upon my mind that I well remember being afraid to lift up my eyes upon him higher than his knees, and that I knew him by his shoe buckles better than any other part of his dress. May the Lord pardon him. And may we meet in glory. Biographers have a tendency to psychoanalyze Cooper, which may or may not be helpful. Some more qualified to do that than others. But at least we can say that Cooper clearly had a traumatic childhood. He loses his mother when he's six years old. He watches his siblings die. His father sends him away. And he's barbarized by this boy. Just an immensely difficult early childhood. At the age of 10, he attends Westminster Private School in London, where he will remain until he enters adulthood. He receives a top-notch education there, becoming proficient in French, Latin, Greek, and the classics. He becomes something of a bona fide classic scholar. In 1749, at the age of 18, he begins work as an apprentice to a solicitor. Think like a kind of lawyer. His father wants him to prepare for a career, a career himself in the law, though it doesn't seem that Cooper is too keen on that himself. So he becomes an apprentice to a solicitor, and he sort of meanders in this role, uh, for 10 years, just sort of wading through life, sort of aimless and adrift. Uh, Cooper is passive by nature. He's never going to take the next step or make the big decision uh, on his own. It's during this time in 1752, at the age of 21, that Cooper experiences his first documented episode of a kind of paralyzing depression. And he will struggle with depression or melancholy, as they called it in the 18th century, uh, for the rest of his life. He'll experience five intense depressive episodes or downturns over the course of his life. Always struggles with depression, but five sort of acute episodes sort of spiral him out of control. This is the first of them when he's 21, and he describes it this way. Cooper says, quote, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. I presently lost all relish for those studies to which before I'd been closely attached. The classics had no longer any charms for me. I needed something more salutary than amusement, but I had not one to direct me where to find it, end quote. He gains help during this time from at least two sources. The first is the poetry of George Herbert, which would prove an immense comfort to him throughout his life. I warmly encourage you to read the poetry of George Herbert, wonderful Christian poet. Uh, and secondly, he's helped by a change of scenery. 
He goes to the coast in Southampton and experiences a temporary renewal of health and mental equilibrium, uh, enough to return to London and to continue his work in his apprenticeship. Uh, however, this recovery of health is not to last. In 1763, his father seeks a promotion for his son to the office of clerk of journals for Parliament, which would be a significant position uh, for the young Cooper. However, to enter the role, he has to submit to a very rigorous public examination. And the prospect of this examination totally breaks him. I mean, he just has a total uh, mental and emotional psychological breakdown at the prospect of having to appear for this public uh, examination uh, interview with his superiors. Uh, so he says this, quote, All the horrors of my fears and perplexities now returned. A thunderbolt would have been as welcome as this. Those whose spirits are formed like mine, to whom a public exhibition of themselves on any occasion is mortal poison, may have some idea of the horror of my situation. Others can have none. He describes his terror at going into work during this period. So he's anticipating this interview, this public examination uh, before those uh, in charge of this role, the clerk of journals. And uh, he talks about going into work and just this extreme panic and terror that he feels. He says this, quote, uh, the feelings of a man when he arrives at the place of execution are probably much like what I experience every time I set my foot in the office. Uh, brothers, I'll just say, there are likely men or women in your church who feel that way right now. Uh, through some struggle with anxiety or depression or something like that, they wake up in the morning dreading the day. And going, whether it's to the office or the school or whatever the case may be, they dread it, uh, much like Cooper dreaded going into work during this time. So Cooper essentially begins to lose his mind leading up to the interview. He begins to fantasize about suicide. He purchases poison to kill himself, and as he's opening the, the uh, jar of poison, he has a panic attack and is unable to follow through with the deed. Uh, he walks all the way to Tower Wharf to throw himself over, but chickens out at the last minute. He tries to stab himself through the heart, but the tip of his knife snaps in two. Uh, finally, he goes home the night before the examination, and he attempts to hang himself three times, uh, the third time passing out and falling to the floor, and that's where they find him. Uh, the examination is called off, his career is seemingly over, and he is institutionalized at St. Albans Insane Asylum in London. This is 1763, he's 32 years old, he's not a Christian, and he wishes he was dead. It's right around this time uh, that Newton is arriving for his pastorate in Olney. That's kind of where he is in his story. Around this time, uh, Cooper begins to develop the view that he's hated by God, uh, that he's a reprobate, and that he's shut out from the hope of heaven. I don't know how he develops this conclusion, but he's sure that he's damned and the judgment of God is upon him and that there's nothing he can do about it. Uh, so he's at St. Albans. He's a psychological and emotional wreck. He believes himself to be damned, and all he wants to do is end his life. And one of the things he writes about, it's just tragic to read, uh, he writes in his diaries and in letters at this time, of the torture of wanting to kill yourself, but being repeatedly thwarted in the effort uh, through the constant surveillance that he was under. He describes it as a kind of uh, torture. He's such a threat to himself that even have to remove his shoe buckles uh, because he was using them to harm himself. Uh, but in the mysterious providence of God, it is this stay at St. Albans that eventually changes everything for Cooper and leads to his conversion. Cooper is entrusted to the care of a doctor named Nathaniel Cotton, who is an evangelical Christian. And Cotton takes a special interest in Cooper. He loves Cooper and ministers to him for six months. He counsels him, he prays with him, he cares for him. He even leaves copies of the Bible behind in places where he thinks Cooper might find the Bible and pick it up and read it. Cooper won't let him read the Bible to him. But he thinks maybe if I leave it you know, by the, the sink here or by the foot of the bed, perhaps Cooper will pick it up and read on his own when no one else is looking. And so it happens one day, that effort is successful. Uh, Cooper is sitting in the garden at St. Albans at St. Asylum. He finds a Bible there and opens it, and Cooper writes this about that experience. He says, quote, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened up to the 11th of St. John, that's John 11, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation. Little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. 
I sighed and said, oh, that I had not rejected so good a redeemer, that I had not forfeited all his favors. Thus was my heart softened, though not yet enlightened, end quote. Though he's not yet converted, he does feel a new hope that God can perhaps save him. A short time afterwards, he turns again in the Bible, this time to Romans 3.25, which becomes the linchpin in his conversion. I trust that verse is well known to you. It says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And this is what Cooper says about his experience at reading that verse. Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Unless the mighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Uh, thus Cooper is wonderfully converted during his stay at an insane asylum. I just never know how God is working. We should magnify the providence of God. Newton on a slave ship, Cooper in an insane asylum. Cooper leaves St. Albans, and in June 1765, he is taken in by the Unwin family, U-N-W-I-N, Morley Unwin, a minister, and Mary Unwin, his wife. Uh, Cooper had been good friends with their son uh, earlier in his life, and so they treat Cooper as a kind of adopted son to the family. They take him in. However, in 1767, two years after Cooper is taken in by the Unwins, uh, Morley dies after being thrown from his horse. Uh, Cooper is now living with the widowed Mary Unwin. And Mary, by all outward appearances, from what we can tell, plays the part of mother to Cooper, uh, though the rumor or suspicion of a sexual relationship with her will follow him the rest of his life, uh, for Cooper would live for the rest of his life with Mary Unwin. It's a strange relationship. The more you read about it, kind of the stranger it becomes, uh, but there it is. And his friends will always testify the relationship never became sexual. She was a mother uh, to Cooper. Uh, they will end up supporting and helping each other for the next 30 years. After Morley Unwin dies... The Unwin family receives a visit from a pastor from a neighboring parish in a little town called Olney. Uh, this pastor is John Newton. Newton was already planning to visit the Unwins. He wanted to meet the minister in the neighboring parish, uh, Morley Unwin. But when he arrives, he comes to realize that Un Morley Unwin has died. And so he's there now ministering to this broken and fractured family, ministering to Morley's widow and the adopted son, uh, Cooper. And, and Newton is filled with compassion for uh, Mrs. Unwin and... William Cooper. He's so overwhelmingly effective in counseling and encouraging them that Cooper and Mrs. Unwin immediately feel led to move to Olney and to come under Newton's pastoral care. And Newton warmly receives them and he even invites them to stay in his home as they transition to the area. And so in 1767, William Cooper moves to Olney and begins his friendship with Newton as his house guest. Uh, both men come into one another's lives at a pivotal time. Uh, both men at this stage of life needed one another. In 1767, uh, Jonathan Aiken, in his biography of Newton, writes of their friendship uh, this. He says, it became the deepest and most creative relationship in both men's lives. Without Newton, it is unlikely that Cooper would have recovered his mental equilibrium or published his finest poems. Without Cooper, who became his house guest, next door neighbor, and lay curate, Newton would have become overloaded with pastoral and parish duties. Uh, Newton begins to engage Cooper as a kind of assistant pastor or lay curate, so they're colleagues in the ministry together. Uh, he would have Cooper lead prayer meetings, participate in visitation, and oversee aspects of mercy ministry in the community. They're true partners in the gospel together, co-laborers uh, seeking to serve the people of Olney and the church of St. Peter and St. Paul. After his initial stay of a few months in Newton's home, Cooper moves to a house that is literally a stone's throw from Newton's residence. I, I've been there at both houses, literally you could throw a rock from Cooper's house uh, to Newton's house. Newton and Cooper endeavor to see one another every day. Uh, however, to get to one another's homes by road is somewhat inconvenient and involves taking a roundabout way that takes longer than desired. It's a little bit like my situation, which I complain about all the time. I live uh, uh, less than a mile as the crow flies from this church building, but I got to take like a seven minute drive that's like three miles because I can't cut through Polo Road because of some ordinance or something. And so uh, I complain about that. So did Newton and Cooper apparently. Uh, but they discover that their homes are connected by a short path through a neighbor's field. And because of their close friendship and their desire to be able to visit one another daily and on short notice, 
Uh, Newton and Cooper together purchased access through that neighbor's field for a guinea a year, uh, which was no small sum. I had to look this up. I don't know how much a guinea is, uh, but in those days, about $200. Uh, so it was not an inconsiderable amount of money. Actually, to this day, that field is known as Guinea Field. I've stood in that field. It's a wonderful token to Newton and Cooper's friendship. Guinea Field, uh, near Guinea Orchard, where Cooper's house was. Uh, Scott Daniel, he's going to be leading the panel here. Scott is a local uh, pastor here in the area, and he convinced me, he's my only friend that I talk with on the Marco Polo app. So Marco Polo, Scott, is like our Guinea Field, okay? Uh, our way of serving one another in our friendship. Uh, Newton and Cooper spend hours on walks together, disclosing to one another their deepest feelings, thoughts, hopes, and anxieties. They are uniquely suited for one another. Uh, both men are well-educated, uh, kind of autodidacts. They're fluent in Latin and Greek and well-versed in classical and contemporary literature. Uh, both are avid writers and lovers of poetry and music. Uh, both men had difficult backgrounds with some kind of trauma. Uh, both lost their mothers when they were only six years old. And of course, both men had been radically saved by the sovereign grace of God in circumstances they never could have anticipated. Uh, moreover, both men are deeply devoted to the Bible and serious Bible study. On their walks together, they would often labor long over passages of Scripture and seek to help one another better understand the Bible. Uh, Newton will later write, I don't know a person upon earth I consult upon a text of Scripture or any point of conscience so much to my satisfaction as Mr. Cooper. If you know Newton's friendships, uh, the many eminent preachers and theologians who were uh, friends of John Newton, that's quite a statement for him to make about the theological and biblical acumen of Mr. Cooper. The friendship between Newton and Cooper is not only a blessing and comfort to the two men themselves, but their friendship proves to be of immense public benefit through their co-laboring together in the care of the church and of the people of Olney. Uh, but eventually, the fruits of their friendship would go global and would come to bless millions for years to come through a joint venture known as Olney Hymns. Uh, Olney Hymns is a collection of 276 hymns. Uh, Newton writes 208 of them, and Cooper writes 68. Uh, some of Newton's most well-known hymns in that hymnal are Amazing Grace, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Some of you just realized, oh, that's how I know the name John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Uh, some of Cooper's most well-known hymns are God Moves in a Mysterious Way, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and Jesus, Where'er Thy People Meet. Uh, the hymnal is extraordinarily popular. After its publication in 1779, only hymns will appear in 37 editions before 1836. Uh, I have an old 1807 edition uh, back in my study. It is one of the most influential hymnals in the history of the Christian church. In the preface to Olney Hymns, uh, Newton says that in addition to promoting the evangelical faith, the book serves a second purpose. He says this, it was likewise intended as a monument to perpetuate the remembrance of an intimate and endeared friendship. As fruitful as the hymnal would prove to be, it also marks a tragic shift in the relationship between Newton and Cooper. I told you Cooper only writes 68 of the hymns to Newton's 208. That's because Cooper's involvement in only hymns is eventually interrupted by an unexpected trial that threatens to derail the project and the friendship entirely. Although Cooper's depression had abated in the years after his conversion, it would not be held at bay forever. The years 1767 to 1773 are some of the best years of Cooper's life. He's doing well, he's thriving in the employ of the church and in friendship with Newton, but that period of prosperity was not to last. Uh, things begin to change as early as 1772 as Cooper endures a number of significant personal and family trials that produce great anxiety in his heart. These trials culminate in what Cooper would often refer to as the storm. You'll see that motif, the storm. Uh, in many of his poems, and certainly many of his letters as well. This storm would forever change Cooper's life, as well as the friendship between Newton and Cooper. In January 1773, the storm plunges Cooper into a suicidal crisis of faith, which will demand Newton's constant surveillance and attention. Uh, Newton's friendship with Cooper will prove to be literally life-saving uh, to Cooper. Let me read a slightly longer passage from Aiken's biography recounting this chapter in Cooper's life. On Friday, January 1st, 1773, an hour or two after hearing Newton preach at the morning service in the church, interestingly enough, January 1st, 1773 is when Newton first introduced his hymn, Amazing Grace. So that's just been some of the first time in human history, and Cooper is leaving that service, and that's what Aiken is recounting here. Cooper was walking in the fields around Olney, 
when he was struck by a terrible premonition that the curse of madness was about to fall on him again. Struggling to make a declaration of his faith in poetic form before his mind was enclosed in the darkness of depression, he struggled home, picked up his pen, and wrote a hymn that many regard as a literary and spiritual masterpiece. Cooper entitled this hymn, Light Shining Out of Darkness. Uh, We know it by its first line, God moves in a mysterious way. Let me read those words for you to the hymn. Cooper writes on that January 1st morning, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Aiken goes on to write, soon after writing these memorable lines, the dreaded clouds arrived, and Cooper's mind plunged into an abyss of madness. During the night of January 1st into January 2nd, he had terrible dreams and hallucinations. In the middle of these nocturnal terrors, he came to the insane conclusion that God had commanded him to take his own life in the manner of Abraham wielding his knife against his son Isaac. Cooper attempted to obey this imaginary command. His suicide was thwarted by the action of Mary Unwin. She sent for Newton in the small hours of the morning. On arrival at Orchardside, Newton was appalled by his friend's condition. The scene involved bloodshed, presumably by self-inflicted wounds, and may well have included hysteria. Newton must have tried to calm his friend, but to no long-term avail. In the ensuing days, Cooper was tormented by repeated hallucinations and panic attacks, end quote. Uh, It is striking to read you can find these, Newton's terse diary entries over the next several days. Look up his diary entries in January of 1773. I'll just read a few of them. This is Newton writing in his diary. Saturday, January 2nd. My time and thoughts much engrossed today by an affecting and critical dispensation at Orchardside. That's the name of Cooper's house. I was sent for early this morning and returned astonished and grieved. How mysterious are the ways of the Lord. Tuesday, January 5th, I have now devoted myself and time as much as possible to attend to Mr. Cooper. We walk today and probably shall daily. I shall shall now have little leisure, but for such things as indispensably require attention. Wednesday, January 6th, much as yesterday, I have now to perform family worship morning and evening in two houses. The storm is heavy, but I can perceive that the Lord is present in it. Friday, January 22nd. My dear friend still walks in darkness. I can hardly conceive that anyone in a state of grace and favor with God can be in greater distress. Sunday, January 24th, a very alarming turn roused us from our beds and called us to Orchard Side at four in the morning. I stayed there till eight, by which time the threatening appearance went entirely off and now things remain much as they were. This mental crisis for Cooper it would go on for weeks on end, and Newton is to be found constantly at his side, caring for him. He spends several hours a day with Cooper, praying with him, reading the Bible to him, speaking the truth to him, and sometimes just sitting with him. Uh, I, I, I like to speculate uh, that even as in the middle of the night, perhaps Newton is literally uh, holding Cooper's veins closed. Uh, maybe he encouraged Cooper with the words of his own song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and encourage him to trust in the comfort of that blood. He's constantly being called to Cooper's bedside. He's called home from vacation, called in the middle of the night, called sometimes just after stepping out of the pulpit. And Newton is always there for Cooper. He writes at this time, besides the submission I owe to the Lord, I think I can hardly do or suffer too much for such a friend. Eventually, Newton arranges to have Cooper and Mrs. Unwin move back in with him and his wife while Cooper continues to recover. This second stay with the Newtons lasts over a year. 
uh, Newton, uh, Newton's friend, excuse me, Richard Cecil, uh, writes of Newton, his house was an asylum for the perplexed and afflicted. Now, Newton's diaries during this period amount to uh, just an ongoing running report on Cooper's status and progress. He writes one day of noticing Cooper's smile, and he flips back in his diary, and he writes, uh, I saw my friend Mr. Cooper smile today. That's the first smile in 16 months. He's literally documenting the facial expressions uh, on his friend's face. The first time in 16 months he cracked a smile, and he's drawing encouragement from that little sign of hope. Uh, William Jay, the great preacher, sums up Newton's response to Cooper's trial this way. Uh, Jay says this, he had the tenderest disposition, and listen to this, and always judiciously regarded his friend's depression and despondency as a physical effect for the removal of which he prayed, but never reasoned or argued with him concerning it. A Newton would, throughout the rest of Cooper's life, refer to this as Cooper's disease. He understood Cooper's madness, his depression, to have an underlying physiological cause, not a cause that was principally rooted in Cooper's own sins. Summing up their years together in Olney, Newton says this of Cooper, in humility, simplicity, a devotedness to God, in the clearness of his views of evangelical truth, the strength of the comforts he obtained from them, and the uniform and beautiful example by which he adorned them, I thought he had but few equals. He was eminently a blessing both to me and my people by his advice, his conduct, and his prayers. The Lord who had brought us together so knit our hearts and affections that for nearly 12 years we were seldom separated for 12 hours at a time when we were awake and at home. The first six I passed in daily admiring and trying to imitate him. During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. And Newton moves to London in 1780 to take the pastorate of St. Mary Woolnoth, a prominent church in the heart of London. He continues, though, to be intimately involved with Cooper, uh, sending him letters, visiting him, encouraging others to visit him, making all kinds of provisions for him. Uh, in reading through Newton's letters in preparation for this talk, uh, I saw he signed one of them uh, with these words. This is Newton to Cooper. He signs it, Excepto quod non simulu esses cetera latus. Happy on all accounts, except that you are not with me. Well, what of Cooper? Simply put, Cooper would never be the same. He persists in some kind of state of extreme depression for the rest of his life. Uh, that January 1st morning in 1773 would be his last time ever attending a worship service in a church. He dies 27 years later, never goes to church again. And he would sometimes point to the church down the road. He'd say, that's where I used to find comfort, but never again. He comes to develop the deluded view that he is surely under God's wrath and that God is against him for his failure to take his own life. And this comes through in frightening ways in some of his poems. Uh, listen to these lines from his poem, Hatred and Vengeance. Hatred and vengeance, my eternal portion. Scarce can endure delay of execution. Wait with impatient readiness to seize my soul in a moment. Man disavows and deity disowns me. Hell might afford my miseries a shelter. Therefore, hell keeps her ever hungry mouths all bolted against me. Though his condition would ebb and flow, Cooper never again finds a way out of his depression. Uh, he will always maintain a fundamental belief in the evangelical doctrines of the Bible. Uh, but Cooper would die believing himself to be separated from God, shut out from the saving mercies of Christ. He believes Jesus Christ is Savior for sinners, uh, just not for me. I've I failed. Uh, the descriptions we get of his own view of himself are heart-wrenching to read. Toward the end of his life, he describes himself to Newton as scrambling in the dark among rocks and precipices without a guide, and as a battered actor upon this turbulent stage, the most unpitied, the most unprotected, and the most unacknowledged outcast of the human race. Uh, the last poem he writes uh, shortly before his death is in 1799. Uh, he calls it the castaway. The last stanza reads, the last lines of poetry, verse that Cooper ever wrote. No voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I beneath a rougher sea and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. Right before he dies, he says to his caretaker, I feel unutterable despair. 
And so Cooper would die, believing himself to be forsaken by God, a spiritual outcast. His friend, John Newton, knew better. At Cooper's funeral, Newton preached from Exodus 3, 2 through 3. That's a very odd choice of a passage for a funeral sermon. You know what happens in Exodus 3? Kind of go through the catalog. What happens in Exodus 3? I'll read the verses that Newton read. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And then Newton said this, the Lord has given me many friends, but with none have I had so great an intimacy as with my friend, Mr. Cooper. But he is gone. I was glad when I heard it. I know of no text in the whole book of God's word more suited to the case of my dear friend than that I have read. He was indeed a bush in flames for 27 years, but he was not consumed. And why? Because the Lord was there. On another occasion, he said, oh, with what surprise of joy would he find himself immediately before the throne and in the presence of his Lord, all his sorrows left below and earth exchanged for heaven. Oh, brothers, sisters, I want to move now to just a few lessons I think we can learn uh, from this narrative and account of the friendship of Newton and Cooper. Three lessons for us this morning. Number one, Newton and Cooper teach us something about the value of intimate Christian friendships. Newton and Cooper teach us something about the value of intimate Christian friendships. I think this is something church history uh, can teach us, and Newton and Cooper are great examples of it. Uh, brothers, you recognize and we're meant to have these kinds of friendships in our lives. Uh, bosom friends, brothers in arms, fellow travelers with whom we share our lives and our hearts, our whole selves. There's something right and good about close, affectionate, brotherly friendships. Uh, friendships in which life is lived openly in the presence of the other. Anxieties and burdens are shared. The most important and pressing spiritual realities are frequently discussed. Where accountability is real, sin and temptation are fought side by side, and grace and help are freely extended. Uh, friends, we ought to have these kinds of relationships. And so, brother, pastor, I just ask you, do you have friends like this? I mean, other than your wife. Do you have friends like this among your brothers in Christ? Are you actually vulnerable in a personal, open, and honest way with anyone? Uh, do you share your soul, bear your soul? To anyone. Is there anyone in the world acquainted with the deepest anxieties and fears of your heart? Right now, that thing that is the greatest source of anxiety and fear and discouragement in your heart, does anyone know what that is other than you and Jesus? It's always sad to find a pastor who doesn't have a bosom friend. It's even more sad, I think, to find a pastor who doesn't know he needs one. I think these kinds of friendships, though rare, should be more normal and ordinary among us. We need these types of friendships. There's something deeply right, deeply human about them. And brothers, since this is a minister's conference, I just want to particularly commend that you pursue these kinds of friendships among other ministers. You can certainly pursue these kinds of friendships among all of God's people, but how helpful to have such close and intimate friendships among fellow ministers. If you want help in this area, you might look at some of the famous friendships in the Bible. Uh, consider David and Jonathan, or Elijah and Elisha. Or Naomi and Ruth, or the Apostle Paul and Timothy, the affectionate way Paul spoke to Timothy. You might consider the Lord himself and his friendship with his disciples, especially that inner ring of brothers Peter, James, and John. Or you can look to church history at friendships like the one between Luther and Melanchthon, Calvin and Beza, Fuller and Carey, Warfield and Machen, or Lewis and Tolkien. You could read what others have written on friendship. Read John Newton on friendship. You'll get a lot of that in Tony Ranke's uh, book, but you could really read anybody from the long 18th century. I think they did this better in that period than we uh, do it today. Read Augustine on friendship. So excellent. Augustine's reflections on friendship. Read Luther on friendship. Read C.S. Lewis on friendship. Uh, read Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon speaks of the sore trial of ministerial loneliness, and he says that every pastor should have a, a twin soul, he calls it. 
Uh, Newton and Cooper, I think, were twin souls. Uh, brother, find a twin soul for yourself. You need these kinds of friendships. You need them if you're a William Cooper, and you need them if you're a John Newton. Uh, the friendship between these two men began as a pastoral friendship, as a friendship of co-laborers who deeply understood and appreciated one another, and they truly helped each other. Uh, of course, the friendship would become more one-sided later on, but the point is uh, the close and intimate and affectionate bond was established before the day of trouble. Uh, Newton was qualified to help his friend when trouble came because they'd established this bond earlier. Brother, if you started to go mad as William Cooper did, who would help you? So I don't plan on going mad. Well, no one that does, does plan on going mad. If you started to lose your mind, if you started to spiral out of control into some kind of depressive, suicidal episode, who would sit with you in the early hours of the morning before the sun came up? If you, God forbid, harmed yourself, who would hold your wrist shut while waiting for the doctor to arrive? Uh, friends, in an age marked by so much isolation and loneliness and withdrawal, we need such friends. And in such a context, how brilliantly should the light of Christian friendship shine? A second lesson for us this morning, especially for the pastors here with us. Lesson number two, Newton shows us what persevering pastoral care looks like. Newton shows us what persevering pastoral care looks like. Newton is a true pastor. Uh, as true a pastor as you will find in church history. If you want to be, brother, a more devoted pastor, a more loving pastor, a more patient pastor, a more long-suffering pastor, a more sacrificial pastor, spend more time with John Newton. Uh, read his biography. Read his letters. Read well, that book, Wise Counsel, the collection of letters to John Ryland Jr., where we get uh, so much of his pastoral theology. I focus on his relationship with William Cooper, but his posture toward Cooper is representative of his posture toward all of Christ's people. His posture is, how can I help? How can I minister? How can I serve? How can I lay myself down and pour myself out for the salvation of all those who come under my ministry? I think Newton imitates well, perhaps better than any, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Brother Pastor, you know your ministry among your people is not just to share with them the gospel. It's to share your very self, your heart, your person as a shepherd of the flock. From his very first interaction with Cooper, you just get the sense Newton is utterly committed to doing Cooper good, of working for his spiritual health, of promoting his godliness and his eternal happiness. Uh, the extent and degree of his pastoral care for Cooper knows no bounds. And it's worth noting, brothers, the pastoral care did not diminish or relent as soon as Cooper became a more problematic church member. Uh, it rather intensified. Uh, Newton is answering the call at 2 a.m. He's coming home from vacation to minister to Christ's herding sheep. He's laying down his life for Cooper. And even when he goes to London, he's still engaged with him. He doesn't just give up on Cooper at that point. I mean, how many of us, if we transferred to another church, would we think, man, I'm just glad to have that guy out of my life, so needy. Uh, man, he occupied so much of my schedule. I'm, I'm glad to have a new charge now. Where hopefully I don't have as many problem members. And Newton doesn't take that attitude. He's, he's constantly writing back to Olney. How's my friend? How can I comfort him? Let me take a visit back. Do I have time? Can I go and be with him even as I shepherd my flock here in London? Now, brothers, just to be clear, hear this disclaimer. I'm not saying there's no place for boundaries with church members, that there's never a time to let the phone go to voicemail, uh, that there's no such thing as a kind of unhealthy codependency that can emerge between shepherd and sheep. But my suspicion is that that's not where most of us are tempted to fail. Now, I'll just speak for myself. I don't think I'm in danger of being too generous with my time for the flock. I tend to be selfish with my calendar and possessive with my schedule. But Newton makes me want to be more generous with my time. He makes me want to be a better pastor. He makes me want to lay myself out uh, for the flock and to serve them in what ways I can, to persevere in pastoral care. And by his persevering pastoral care, Newton communicated as clearly as he could to Cooper, I will never stop loving you. Uh, brothers, would the, the sheep of your flock have that sense? Would they feel that? My pastor will never stop loving me. 
No matter how problematic I become, how difficult my life becomes, how much I tax his time, he'll never stop loving me. His love for me will be like that of the Lord himself. In John 13, 1, who said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a great example our Lord has set for us. Lesson number three, and brothers, in my own heart, this is why I uh, personally put together this talk, a lesson that I hope I'm learning from Newton. Lesson three, Newton helps us as pastors to navigate the difficult providences, excuse me, providences that direct our own lives and the lives of our people. Newton helps us as pastors to navigate the difficult providences that direct our own lives and the lives of our people. I think one of the most challenging and disillusioning things I've experienced in my young ministry is when the sheep of the Lord's flock don't make the kind of progress in spiritual things that I wish they would. Or honestly, even in the way I would expect they would, based on the things I read in the Word of God. I just often find myself wondering, perplexed, uh, why do so many backslide? Why do so many fail to make any discernible progress in their walk with the Lord? Why do so many so easily give in to temptation? Why are so many prone to despair? Why aren't my sermons more effective? Why does it seem so many of my words as a pastor fall to the floor? Why isn't my biblical counsel more fruitful in the lives of God's people? Why are so many of the Lord's people discouraged and despondent and unresponsive and weak and fledgling and failing? Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about occasional garden variety backslidings. I'm thinking about kind of persistent spiritual problems that persist despite your best efforts, pastor, to address them pastorally. Here's this hurting sheep, and you have this promise of God's Word, a truth that is exactly suited for their condition, and you offer it to them, and it has zero effect. You're like, why does this work? If they would just believe this promise that I'm giving to them prayerfully, they'd be well. They'd make the kind of progress that I so desperately want to see in their lives. You preach a good sermon on assurance of salvation. Here's this brother or sister who can't find assurance, hasn't been able to find it for years, and your very good sermon on assurance has absolutely no effect. What's going on there? Is God's Word not powerful? Did He not say His Word would not return to Him void? Is His Spirit not at work? Does He not bless and own preaching as the means of awakening faith in the hearts of His people? Doesn't He want His children to be well and to thrive through the means of grace? Why isn't this working? Why isn't this effective? Why can't I get this brother or this sister out of the slough of despond? This brother who's crippled by chronic depression, I can't seem to rescue him. Uh, And this sister who is overrun with crippling anxiety, I'm no help to her, though I try with everything in me, with all the grace and strength that the Lord supplies, with all the wisdom that I possess, I'm trying to help them and it's having no effect. Why is there this dissonance between the clear promises of God's Word, the brilliant exhibition of the means of grace, and the total spiritual inertia in some of God's people? Newton had to deal with this in his best friend, his needy member of his flock, his co-pastor. If you read their correspondence over the course of their friendship over three decades, you see Newton constantly, lovingly, tenderly offering forth encouragement and counsel and support and comfort. What you see again and again in Cooper is just a total inability to lay hold of any of the comforts and encouragements that Newton lays out for him. So here's my question in closing. How does Newton cope with this? I mean, 27 years with his poor friend who's in depression, he can't get him out of it. All his efforts seem to be having no effect. What can we learn from him? I think there's two things he does that are instructive to us. First, he humbly bows to the providence of God in Cooper's life and his own. And secondly, he commits to never stop loving Cooper. Listen to what Newton says here. Heavy indeed is the trial with which the Lord has visited him. And to appearance, no one needed it less. I could hardly form an idea of a closer walk with God than he uniformly maintained. 
communion with God and the good of His people seemed to be the only objects He had in view from the beginning to the end of the year. He was remarkably thriving and happy to the very hour when this trouble overtook Him. But the Lord is wise. Mysterious as the dispensation seems, I dare not question its expediency, nor though it continues so long can I despond as to the event. In the meantime, it is, upon many accounts, a very great trial to me. But I hope I am learning, though I am now a slow scholar, to silence all vain reasonings and unbelieving complaints with the consideration of the Lord's sovereignty, wisdom, and love. The best that I can do is to sit and look on and wonder while the Lord works. What a mercy it is that He will take so many wise methods to hide pride from man. In a letter to Hannah Moore, the great author and social reformer written just after Cooper died, Newton writes, my most dear and intimate friend William Cooper has obtained a release from all his distresses. Why was he who both by talents and disposition seemed qualified, if it were possible, to reform the age in which he lived, harassed by distresses and despair. The Lord's thoughts and ways are so much above ours that it becomes us rather to lie in the dust in adoration and silence than to inquire presumptuously into the grounds of his proceedings. But we are sure that he is rich enough and that eternity is long enough to make him abundant amends for whatever his infinite wisdom has seen fit to call him to, for promoting his glory in the end. Brothers, so much of the Christian life and so much of pastoral ministry is simply about learning to bow to the providence of God. God directs all the affairs of our lives, and he directs all the affairs of all those sheep who have been entrusted to our care, and we must allow him to do his work and not quarrel with him, about the direction his providence takes. The Lord will humble us in our care for the flock. But friend, the secret working of the Lord's mysterious providence doesn't change your job. You are the shepherd of the flock. You are the steward, the overseer. You have souls committed to your charge, and you must care for them. Brother pastor, one day you will stand before Christ and give an account for each of the souls under your care. And your job doesn't change just because the Lord's providences may perplex you. We must submit to His providence. And as we submit to His providence, and accept all that might be discouraging and disillusioning, we must never stop loving the Lord's people. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. I give Newton the final word. But he is the potter. We are the clay. His ways and thoughts are above ours, as the heavens are higher than the earth. The judge of all the earth will do right. He has appointed a day when he will manifest the conviction of all that he has done right. Till then, I hold it best to take things upon his word and not too harshly determine what it becomes Jehovah to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, perhaps there are some here in this room who don't have to exercise any great stretch of imagination to feel with William Cooper. They're quite familiar with the feeling of despair and depression and anxiety and fear. We pray, Father, that you would comfort them that you would have mercy on them. We pray that you would help them to see that though your providence in their lives is mysterious, at times perplexing, that you are ultimately working for the good of all those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, To those among us who are connected to those who are similarly formed like a William Cooper, give us great grace and much love and affection in our hearts uh, for the bruised reed and the smoldering flax, uh, for your sheep, who are struggling. May we love them to the end. May we persevere in our care for them. I especially pray, Lord, help the pastors here. Probably no pastor here is unfamiliar with this kind of spiritual malady and difficulty in some of the Lord's people. We pray that you would help us be patient pastors, loving pastors. May we succeed and be effective 
causing those under our care to feel and to know that we love them and will never stop loving them. But now, Lord, we do commend your flock, your sheep. They're yours, not ours. No temporary stewardship over the flock. We commend them to your grace and to your sovereign hand, trusting that you will work your will, that you will bring about glory for your great name, that you will keep all those and none will be lost of those who are yours, and that you will one day vindicate your righteousness and your perfect wisdom when we all stand before you in glory with John Newton, with William Cooper, and millions of other souls who have sojourned through this life. Oh, please, Father, grant grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.